GU Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed, supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GU Connect group. For expert disclosures on conflict of interest, please visit the GU Connect website. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series on radiopharmaceuticals for prostate cancer. I'm Dr. Tanya Dorf, a medical oncologist from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, and I'm here with Dr. Philip Koo, Division Chief of Diagnostic Imaging at the Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center in Arizona. Today, we are continuing our discussion on radiopharmaceuticals and prostate cancer, but turning our attention to Theranostics with PSMA-targeted radiopharmaceuticals. Philip, you've been familiar with PSMA as a target in nuclear medicine for some time. Why is PSMA a target for prostate cancer, and how is it becoming more of a therapeutic target? So PSMA stands for prostate-specific membrane antigen, and uh, it is highly expressed and overexpressed in patients' prostate cancer cells, and most of them, uh, though that expression does vary depending on a variety of factors and, and, and then the cell type. What we've seen is in patients with prostate cancer, you have this overexpression. So kind of similar to what we talked about in an earlier episode, because this drug is administered intravenously, we really need to identify a target on the prostate cancer cell that is very specific. Uh, That'll allow the radiopharmaceutical to circulate in the body and localize only in the sites that actually have this overexpression of PSMA. And that specificity with targeting will allow for greater treatment effect and decreased adverse events and decreased non-target radiation delivery. So as I mentioned, this drug is administered intravenously. Uh, and in, in the vision trial, it was administered up to six doses uh, in total. And lutetium-6117 being a beta emitter uh, admits that radiation particle that leads to uh, the cell death. So I know we've seen phase two data that look really promising with a strong uh, waterfall plot of, of patients seeming to respond. Have we seen any randomized trial data with lutetium PSMA? So at ASCO uh, in 2020 last year, that was sort of a, a landmark meeting for lutetium-177 PSMA because uh, the therapy trial from Michael Hoffman in Australia was was first reported, and that was a randomized prospective trial that looked at lutetium-177 PSMA versus cabazitaxel. Uh, And in that patient population, I believe those were randomized in a one-to-one ratio. Uh, And in that patient population, after 13 months of follow-up, what they saw was that the uh, lutetium-177 PSMA had improved uh, PSA progression-free survival compared to cabazitaxel with a hazard ratio of 0.69. And when they looked at a PSA response rate of greater than 50%, they saw that in patients who received lutetium PSMA, they had a 66% decrease in, in that PSA 50 response versus only 37% in the patient population that received cabazitaxel. So that was very exciting. What was also interesting about that trial was that they used PSMA and FTG PET-CT to help determine eligibility. Um, so it was sort of the first time we've seen the use of two of these imaging agents to really figure out which patients might benefit and which patients might not benefit from this drug. It was, I think, a little eye-opening because oftentimes we think 
if there's PSMA expression, there isn't, you know, there might not be uptake with FDG. And I think this really raised uh, the awareness that prostate cancer in these patients is very, very heterogeneous. And I think this really uh, provided some signal that it's going to lead to more research in this area uh, in the future. So I think it's really impressive uh, about the PS, PSA 50 rate being so much higher with this lutetium PSMA compared with such an active comparator. I mean, we saw in the CARD trial that cabazitaxel prolonged survival compared to a second AR-targeted agent. So we know it's effective, but this agent looks to be potentially more effective, although this was a small trial and the the phase three vision trial will provide, you know, more certainty. But what can you say about the safety? How did the patients do in the, the two arms? So this this idea of safety is obviously very important. And it's it's something that a lot of the single site, you know, prospective and retrospective trials looking at PSMA, lutetium 177 PSMA have showed that it's been pretty safe. That being said, it's never been showed in that randomized prospective, prospective setting. Uh, and what they saw was that patients who received the lutetium PSMA PSMA had more thrombocytopenia, dry mouth, and dry eyes compared to uh, the cabazitaxel arm. However, the number of grade three and four adverse events was lower in the lutetium PSMA arm versus the cabazitaxel arm. So overall, I think this showed that this was a very safe drug and in some ways uh, safer than cabazitaxel. Wow, that's really great news for patients to have another option in later stage disease. Um, and of course, we're really anticipating the phase three vision trial results. Tell us a little bit about the trial and what you think it'll mean for clinical practice. You know, this trial accrued very quickly, and uh, I think it stopped accruing maybe over a year ago, a year and a half ago or so. It was Structured similar to Alsimka, which we talked about in, in the prior episode, where you were comparing patients who received lutetium PSMA plus best standard of care versus best standard of care alone. And I believe these were also randomized in a two to one ratio similar to Alsimka. The most exciting piece of, of information that we've heard recently in the past week is the fact that this, it was announced that uh, the trial met its two primary endpoints of overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. So this to me is, you know, vision was the registrational trial that would lead to hopefully FDA approval. And then we saw the announcement that actually showed it met its, its primary endpoint. So it's, it's a huge day when it comes to this class of therapy. Um, but in a lot of ways, this is just the beginning. I think this is the beginning of a, a much longer road of discovery and investigation with regards to how best to incorporate this into all of our clinical practices. So what we're hoping, though, is obviously we know that it's reported out positive, but we need to see the data. And hopefully, perhaps at ASCO this year or a meeting later this year, we'll be able to see the data, uh, dissect the data, and really understand uh, how uh, significant this is and where we need to incorporate this and how it sort of impacts the next steps with regards to the, the, the development of PSMA 617. Yeah, I think for those of us who haven't treated patients personally with this agent, there will be a learning curve about how how to decide about how many doses or when to hold a dose, you know, those little nuts and bolts. Uh, but a unique aspect will be that imaging component and trying to learn about 
what imaging findings are appropriate for selecting our patients. And I'm worried even just about access. What do you think about the availability of both PSMA PET scans and FDG PET scans for prostate cancer patients around the country? So it, in my opinion, the idea of doing a PSMA PET and an FDG PET, um, it's, it's, it's a lot if you think about it. And if you think about the cost in the United States, especially, that's a, a pretty significant cost associated with determining whether or not someone should move forward with that. So I think not to say that cost should be the only factor that determines whether or not it's appropriate or not. Obviously, we need to investigate that and figure out what's best. But um, for the time being, I think the biggest issue in the U.S. particularly is the fact that PSMA PET scans on the diagnostic side are not widely available. So what we're really looking forward to is the uh, Progenix PYL compound that is going for uh, FDA presentation at the end of May. And depending on that, I think that will really change the level of access in the United States. Obviously, the question of access is less of an issue in Europe and Australia and many other countries, uh, so they don't have to worry about that. But in the United States, that is something that we're, we're very keenly aware of uh, because obviously patients will need access to that to determine whether or not they are uh, eligible to receive PSMA 617 in the therapeutic setting. It sounds like we'll be having a lot of conversations between uh, different physicians, the nuclear medicine physicians, uh, as well as the medical oncologists to try to really um, get a handle on this. Yeah, it's so complicated if you think about all the different moving parts right now in this uh, path towards radiopharmaceuticals, uh, therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals, and it really needs a lot of dots to be connected and and, you know, determining where best to fit this is obviously very important. But the logistics now are a huge issue that need to be dealt with. And th again, this goes back to this idea of multidisciplinary care, where the medical oncologists working closely with nuclear medicine, with closely with a lot of different uh, specialists and support uh, services now becomes even more critical. Physicians have obviously been using radiopharmaceuticals for prostate cancer for a number of years now with radium-223. What are some of the differences you would highlight between radium-223 and lutetium PSMA? So the biggest difference is the fact that radium-223 is an alpha particle and lutetium PSMA is a, a beta emitter. And the biggest difference there is the fact that uh, an alpha particle is heavier. It has greater energy transfer, so it actually packs a stronger punch. And it also travels a shorter distance because it's heavier. So in many ways, uh, for radium-223, the, the researchers have taken advantage of that piece to allow for greater linear, linear energy transfer um, that leads to greater cell death with also having decreased adverse events because the, the particle doesn't travel as far a distance. With lutetium PSMA, since it's a beta emitter, those particles actually can travel millimeters in distance, which is much further than uh, an alpha particle like radium, which only travels mic micrometers. Um, so th that's the biggest difference. The other difference is the fact that radium-223 isn't sort of as specific, tumor-specific. It is more calcium-specific. So it's more of a, uh, uh, a calcium mimetic. So it localizes to the bones and it treats the bone. Whereas lutetium PSMA actually localizes to the, that 
that receptor, which can be in bony mets and can also be in soft tissue mets. So this really opens up a whole new idea with radiopharmaceutical therapies because this therapy now treats bone mets and soft tissue mets, whereas radium really just focuses on the bone mets. Well, so that raises an interesting question, I think, if both can target bone metastases, could you use one after the other? What would the considerations be for sequencing? So that's a great question. And I don't think we have the answer to that today. But, you know, if from from what we know about these therapies and kind of what you talked about in our first podcast about radium 223, I think there are patients that clearly would benefit more from a radium 223, especially if they have that bone predominant disease. Um, whereas lutetium PSMA uh, might be better used for those patients who have soft tissue and bone meds. I don't think there's anything to say that the use of one precludes the other. I think we need to think of them independently. And if a patient has the bone marrow reserve to support therapy, I think it should be considered because we don't, I can't really think of some sort of negative uh, additive adverse effects of these two used being used in sequence. Uh, and what we know is radium has been overall generally safe and lutetium-177 PSMA has been relatively safe. And then we start thinking about, you know, when we treat these patients, whether they're earlier or later. Uh, and again, these are areas that we're going to learn more about. But I don't know, Tana, what, what are your thoughts? I think you are someone who obviously manages more of these adverse effects and sees the effects it has on on bone marrow. Where Where do you sort of have pause and where you have more confidence with regards to using these uh, in sequence? Well, obviously, I want to see the data from the vision trial. Um, I don't know whether radium-223 pretreated patients were allowed, so we may not get specific answers from that trial. But just to get a better sense of uh, side effects, you know, what gives me pause is that truism that we've been taught that each uh, area of the body has sort of a lifetime maximum tolerance for radiation. So, you know, be, if the lutetium only treated the soft tissue and the radium only treated the bone, I think maybe I wouldn't have pause. But if we treat the bone with one, can we then treat the bone again with the other? But maybe because of the decay or something more sophisticated that you understand better than I do, it sounds like you're saying you don't think there would be... Um, excess toxicity from from the two agents or sort of overlapping toxicity from the agents. It, it, and I agree, but you're right. We do need to investigate this further. It does make me worried in many ways about, you know, that additive and that cumulative radiation exposure to the bone. Um, I do think about, you know, other disease sites that we've treated with radiopharmaceuticals in the past. And, and I-131 for thyroid cancer is something that we have much more familiarity with. And traditionally, we've been very resistant to, to treat patients with higher doses or, you know, multiple doses over time. But it's been shown to be uh, safe and effective for some, some patients. This, I think, brings up the idea of dosimetry. And I think the dosimetric approach to these unsealed sources of radiation is something that we need to explore purely for what you're talking about right now for that idea of patient safety. So if we can figure out what the cumulative dose is to the bones, and we do know have more knowledge on what the bone marrow can tolerate, I think it will give us more confidence with regards to how much 
of these various radiopharmaceuticals we can give to patients over time and still be safe. That's a great point. Um, I know they are giving, for instance, actinium PSMA at, in patients who have received lutetium PSMA. I don't know um, if that provides us any insights or, or what you can tell us about the other agents that are in development. So, you know, actinium and, and the thorium agents um, are being actively investigated and they're, they're alpha particles. So it's the same idea that Man, if you can target the PSMA expressing prostate cancer cells with something that is more powerful and with a particle that doesn't travel as far a distance, then you might have the best of both worlds where it's killing more of the cells and actually not having as many adverse events. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that we're sort of moving forward to that type of of, of radiopharmaceutical. And some of the preliminary data that's been shown has been very exciting. So kind of to what you pointed to, patients who were treated with, with lutetium-177 PSMA didn't have a response, then were switched over to an actinium, and then you get this amazing response because of that uh, different radiopharmaceutical. The biggest pause that people have with this right now is how do we make sure the adverse events and uh, the AE profile is not as bad? And, and you know, salivary gland toxicity is a serious adverse event. You know, uh, quality of life is something that we really, really need to pay attention to. So it's something that is being explored right now. Uh, I think optimistic that perhaps in the next few years, we'll see more movement here and maybe have even, even better uh, radiopharmaceutical stuff for patients. And we talked last episode about combinations, uh, specifically with radium-223 and things like PARP inhibitors or immunotherapies. Do you think lutetium PSMA could also be combined uh, with something that would be either radiosensitizing or have some kind of synergistic effect? So when we think about radiopharmaceuticals, it's a completely different mechanism of action compared to you know, the antiandrogens and the immunotherapies and whatnot. So I think it really lends itself to this idea and this optimism that this combination approach using these would be beneficial for patients. On top of the fact that, you know, the data so far with radiopharmaceuticals has been that they are very tolerable and relatively safe. Um, and rightfully so, we've seen multiple trials now being explored looking at lutetium PSMA with other therapies. And one trial called the LUPARP trial is looking at um, combining lutetium-177 PSMA with elaparib. Uh, so again, that makes a lot of sense perhaps in those patients with those DDR mutation. It makes even more sense and more optimism there as well. Immunotherapies with pembrolizumab, um, obviously using this in combination with hormonal therapies, these antiandrogens I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, even chemotherapy, you know, we talked a little bit about the Doro trial that combines radium with docetaxel. And obviously we're going to see the trial, the data regarding that hopefully in the future, but using something like lutetium-177 PSMA with docetaxel, perhaps there's a synergistic effect there as well. Obviously it's too early to say that these combination trials are safe and effective, but it's great to see uh, a lot of excitement about these and these being looked at more formally. So we do know the answers, hopefully in the next few years. So Tanya, you know, from your perspective, I'm sure these combination trials, you've seen these combination trials, you, you know, for so long, uh, some that work, some that don't. 
So from your perspective, how do you see this shaping out in the future? Well, I've been very interested in the immune modulatory effects of these agents. Um, and we're actually studying um, both tissue and circulating immune biomarkers in the context of radium. Um, but I think that, um, you know, that concept of radiation creating an immunogenic cell death is really exciting and promising. So of all the combinations, um, I think that's one that I'm really interested to see how the results shape up. Um, patients also, I think, are pushing to have access to these drugs earlier rather than having to wait till later in their disease because of the side effect profile, as you mentioned, which is um, quite good. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how trials uh, that move these agents even earlier in metastatic prostate cancer uh, end up looking. So this idea of immunotherapy, I know oftentimes we don't think of prostate cancer with immunotherapies, but perhaps, you know, something that combines the two might have that type of synergistic effect where immunotherapy might have uh, a greater effect in more patients. And, and this is where I think a lot of times with trials, w whenever we have a negative trial, we tend to sort of pivot a little too far in one direction versus another. Um, but it's great to see that there still is some excitement about, you know, um, using these drugs in combination with um, other, you know, radiopharmaceuticals. Well, Philip, thanks for yet another great discussion today. It's been really informative. Thanks, Tanya. It's been great having the opportunity to review this exciting area with you. This GU Connect podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit guconnect.info for more information.